keep an open mind. There'll be some things that you will absolutely love and really relish and have a little bit more freedom. I think there are other things that will be challenging. And I think the most important thing is to be kind to yourself in the process. Hello and welcome to the Medical Women podcast, the podcast from the Medical Women's Federation, the largest body of women doctors in the UK. I'm Dr. Nathana Bayankaram, I'm the Vice President of MWF, and I have the honour and joy of being your host, as each week we hear from wonderful guests to help you feel more empowered and confident on your medical career journey. Hello everyone, a very warm welcome to this week's episode of the Medical Women podcast. I can't quite believe that it is December 2022 already. We started the podcast on the 1st of February 2022 to mark 105 years of the Medical Women's Federation. And over the last 10, 11 months, um, we've had over 4,500 listens in about 40 countries around the world, which is amazing. And I just want to say a huge thank you to all of you who are listening. I've had lots of lovely messages from listeners, which is so lovely and so, so helpful. The weird thing about podcasts is that you have absolutely no idea who your audience are. You make something, you put it out there, people listen, you don't know what their take on it is, how they're finding it, how it's landing, whether it's uh, at all helpful. So um, the only way that I know is through receiving feedback. So thank you so much to all of you who have sent in emails or tweets or messages. It's, It's really, really helpful and I so, so appreciate it. Christmas is coming up, so if you could all tell at least one medical woman you know about the podcast, they'll they'll have a whole host of free podcasts to listen and listen to, Um, so please do share it. Also, in the run-up to Christmas, I just want to say I'm not trying to at all suggest that we should all go and buy things from Amazon, but if you do happen to be doing any Christmas shopping on Amazon, We've put the Medical Women's Federation on Amazon Smile, which is a charity thing that Amazon does. So whenever somebody buys through Amazon Smile, say we if, if we spend £10 on Amazon Smile, Amazon will then calculate a proportion of that that they will then pay towards a charity. And we've put the Medical Women's Federation on there because we're trying to raise funds for the organisation so that we can support and empower more medical women in their careers. So if you are going to buy from Amazon anyway, we'd so appreciate if you could buy through Amazon Smile and choose the Medical Women's Federation as your charity of choice. So this week we are at the finale of season two and our guest this week is Dr. Charlotte Leach, who I think is one of one of the biggest supporters of the podcast Since we started the podcast in February, I've had lots of messages from Charlotte um, about various different episodes, and it was lovely to actually get to speak to her on the podcast. Charlotte is a consultant in palliative care, and she shares with us what her transition was like from being a junior doctor to being a consultant, the importance of having hobbies outside of medicine. So she speaks to us about her hobby, which is learning British Sign Language, And she also speaks to us about different opportunities available to consultants and SAS doctors, such as the RCP Emerging Women's Leaders Fellowship, which sounded fantastic. It was really, really interesting to speak to Charlotte. And she made the really important point about 
about being inclusive and making videos with subtitles so that they are more inclusive. And during the conversation, it made me realize that actually the podcast isn't very inclusive in the sense that if somebody can't hear, then they can't use the resource of the podcast. And that's partly why we've been recording videos of all of the episodes because I wanted to make a YouTube channel where we can put them all on because I know some people prefer to to look at things rather than listen to things but also for those who can't hear they would then have that resource where it is subtitled and they could um, they could still gain from the conversation so if there's anybody listening who would like to donate a bit of time to to helping with that resource it would be so helpful and um, it would be a way of making this this podcast available to a wider audience and being more inclusive so please do get in touch with us if you'd be able to do that I've got a whole bank of all of the videos that we've taken particularly for our um, past president's episode for International Women's Day that we've got fantastic videos that would be wonderful for us to edit and put together I just don't have the time to do it with the time where I'm working or doing the podcast so some help with that would be much appreciated so please please do get in touch I hope you find this episode really helpful and I hope you all have a lovely festive period. Um, I hope you manage to get a bit of time off to to, um, look after yourself and spend a bit of time with family and friends. And we will be back in the new year with season three, which we're planning at the moment. And it would be great to hear from you what sort of um, episodes you'd like us to talk about. So what kind of topics you'd like, what speakers you'd like to hear from, I'm really keen that we have a diverse and wide range of speakers or guests, I should say, rather than speakers. So please do get in touch. I promise we do read what you say and we do listen. You know, we're making this so that it's supportive and helpful for you, our listeners. We want to support and empower as many medical women in their careers as possible. So if you have got any ideas for topics or speakers, please, please do have a think and get in touch. Thank you so much. I hope that you really enjoy this episode. I'm sure you'll find it really, really helpful. And over the next few weeks, in between season two and season three, um, you can, of course, take the time to catch up on any of the previous episodes. Take care, enjoy this episode, and I hope you all have a lovely festive period and new year, and I will speak to you again in 2023. So it's lovely today to be joined by Dr. Charlotte Leach. And I have to say, Charlotte is somebody who I feel like I've known quite well via Twitter, because since the podcast came out, she's always sent really lovely messages about each of the episodes. So Charlotte, you're definitely one of the biggest fans of the podcast. So it's so nice to have you on the podcast as our guest today. Thank you, Nathana. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for the invite. Please, could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Lovely, thank you. So my name's Charlotte Leach, and probably like lots and lots of us listening, I wear many, many different hats, both inside and outside of work. So um, I work as a palliative medicine consultant at the Royal Surrey County Hospital down in Guildford. And I've been here for nearly four years now as a new consultant. I work just uh, within the hospital. Uh, which is uh, both a district general hospital and a tertiary cancer centre as well. So I see lots and lots of patients at different stages of treatment. I'll talk a little bit about work and then a little bit 
outside of work as well, if that's sure. all right. So um, I went to medical school down in the southwest. So I trained at the newly opened Peninsula Medical School down in the beautiful Devon and Cornwall, and then uh, moved uh, to Surrey essentially to complete my foundation jobs, internal medicine training, and other bits and pieces. I had a bit of a windy career to get here, like like lots of people. I did geriatrics for a year. I was a specialty doctor in a hospice for a year while doing my master's. And I did a year of research as well, which um, was an absolute joy uh, throughout my training. And then outside of work as well, like like lots of us, I have got lots and lots of other roles. So most importantly to me, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm an auntie, cousin, friend. I've got two gorgeous goddaughters, including uh, one who her mum is my best friend from medical school many years ago. Oh, so that's enough. Yeah, yeah. And like lots of other people as well, I've had times in medicine where I perhaps let some of my hobbies and bits and pieces go. But other things that I really enjoy, I uh, have a dog who is a great therapy, great kind of excuse to get out walking. Um, I enjoy yoga uh, as well. I read lots. Before I was a doctor, I did a degree in English literature and French. So reading oh, wow. something really important to me. And then I ha- uh, also learning British Sign Language, which is something that I tweet about. So probably like lots of people lots and lots of different things going on that make me me wonderful so many different things there I think you know the lovely thing about the medical women's federation is that we have women of different stages of their career different generations different specialties Mm. and I think actually when I think about all the guests we've had so far I think you're the first palliative care doctor that we've had on here um, I think you're right, Nathana. Yes, yes. yes. I, I was yes. thinking, oh no, she's going to tell me that there's somebody that I've forgotten <laughs> as a palliative care doctor then because no. she listens to all the episodes. <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. Yes, I'm the first. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Good. So I think, you know, some of our listeners uh, range from medical students uh, all the way up to retired doctors and some of them might not be that familiar with palliative care. It would be really interesting to hear and what made you decide on on a career in palliative care and how you find it? Because a lot of people, I think, think, oh, wouldn't that be really depressing? Mm, thank you. That's a good question and one that I'm asked quite frequently, actually. So if I just take it back to when I was at medical school, I knew I was going to be a physician um, and I wanted to work within medicine. I'm really proud to be a physician. I think it's an amazing specialty. I like the interactions with patients. I like examining patients. I like prescribing, working with other teams. Um, For me, it's the right specialty. And then as I was doing my core medical training, as it was back then, I did lots of different specialties. And to be honest, I liked most of them, actually. But I think maybe what came out for me more and more was that I didn't want to be a single specialty or a single organ Mm -hmm. and kind of specialist is what I'm saying. And I think within medicine, that leaves you with a few choices. You're either looking at sort of geriatrics, palliative medicine or um, acute internal medicine. And I think for me, what really pulled me to palliative medicine was that actually you rely a lot on your clinical judgment. So many of the patients I see are at very various different stages of their treatment and not everybody is suitable for further investigations, not everybody is suitable for, you know, scans, images, etc. So actually you have to really go back to basics and use your history, your examination and your judgment to actually say to the patient, I think this might be best. I think actually going for further imaging may be quite hard for you. And I think that's a real joy to do as a physician because that's the bread and butter of what you do as a physician. 
I think there's other reasons as well. Um, I really like the fact that actually you get to focus on what matters to the patient. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we use research and evidence. And I think um, that's something that I've been involved with. And that's absolutely crucial for our specialty, just as much as any other specialty. But I think we have a little bit more freedom, maybe, to interpret that for the patient in front of us and to really individualise that care. And I think as well, one thing that I really enjoy, particularly about where I work now, I see a lot of patients very early on at the stage of locally advanced or metastatic cancer. So there's many patients who actually I've looked after for a year and a half or maybe up to two years. And that's a real joy in palliative medicine. You get that continuity of care. So you get the breadth as well as the depth. So I think in summary, it works for me both from an intellectual point of view, but I think it plays to my strength as well, uh, you know, in terms of working with different people, communicating and sometimes thinking, a little bit on the hoof and a little bit on the cuff I think yeah that's that's really interesting I think you know it's such an important aspect of of the patient's life there like getting their end of life care correct and for the patient but also for their family and that whole holistic approach so yeah I think kind of making me feel like I I wish I was palliative care doctor Um, oh well (laughs) I'm biased obviously (laughs) I think but it's, it's nice isn't it it's nice when you speak to people who really like their specialty I think that's I think that's really important yeah. so yeah um maybe I'll have to try and get a bit of pediatric palliative care experience although I don't know how I'll feel about that we'll see so you said that you had been a consultant for four years and it would be great to speak a bit about how you found that transition from being a registrar to, to being a consultant and Is there anything that you would say to your younger self who was just starting? Of course, good question. I think just to put it in context, I worked uh, here at the Royal Surrey both uh, as an ST5 uh, in my training. And then as well, I was offered the opportunity to take a year out of training and do a research. I worked as a clinical research fellow as well. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, one of the most important things was really thinking about what environment do I want to work in? So within palliative medicine, you've got three main environments that we work in, either um, acute hospitals, Uh, inpatient hospice or community palliative care, which is generally linked to a hospice. Many jobs for consultants in palliative uh, care work across two different environments. They're all uh, different, they're all challenging and they're all equally rewarding. I think for me, I really enjoyed working in the acute uh, hospitals as a uh, registrar. And so I think for me, I kind of knew from quite an early stage uh, which environment I wanted to work in. And I was fortunate enough that a new job uh, came up where I'm currently working now. I think what I would kind of say about the transition from registrar to consultant is that it's a big, big step up. And I think maybe if I reflect on perhaps one or two things that I found challenging, I think a lot of the clinical work is generally not as challenging as you might think. So you do hold the ultimate responsibility, but I think by the time you reach the end of your training, most clinical scenarios and situations you feel relatively comfortable with. I think as well, it's really, really important in that transition period to use your other consultant colleagues, to use the kind of wider team as well. I work with an absolutely superb team of nurses here, including our kind of lead senior nurse, who's just, you know, they are fantastic kind of resources and people to bounce ideas off. So I think what I would say to anybody who's approaching CCT or for, you know, GP registrars who are looking at, um, you know, just about to get their certificate, become GPs as well. 
there are lots and lots of other people around you for the clinical bits and pieces. What maybe surprised me about being a consultant was lots of the other bits and pieces that you don't realise that happen. So looking, for example, at things like governance, so for example, looking at policies, procedures, standard operating uh, procedures, those things when you're a consultant become really, really important because actually having those in place influences the day-to-day -day care that you give as well. I think as well, if I talk honestly, something that maybe surprised me about being a consultant was that you go, I think, from being a registrar where you're not actually observed perhaps as much as you realise when you're a registrar. Say, for example, if I went to see patients on my own in the hospital wards, either new referrals or people I was following up, I would generally go on my own as a registrar. And I would do a consultant ward round um, with a consultant twice a week. But most of the time, as a senior registrar, you're relatively autonomous. And I went from quite liking that. Um, I quite like being one-to-one -one with patients on my own. And then you become a consultant. And actually, you're very rarely with a patient on your own. So, for example, when I do my ward rounds, I have a team with me, which is fantastic. So I have junior doctors and our clinical nurse specialists as well. So I, uh, when I'm seeing patients, I always have a team watching, learning and observing from me. When I see patients in outpatient clinics, again, I will generally have either another member of staff with me, often a junior doctor. So we have internal medicine trainees as part of our rotation. So they'll be watching and observing from me as well. We also work, uh, we're very lucky. We have a, a now a specialist occupational therapist with our team. And often for those first assessments, uh, she and I will do joint assessments. So often when you're with patients, you're often being watched. And I don't think I realised maybe that I would find that difficult as a consultant. And this just applies to me. There are, I'm sure, lots of listeners who love, uh, you know, being on ward rounds and being watched. And that's very, very natural progression for them. For me, it's something that I did find a little bit difficult at first. And I think that's just perhaps about getting to know yourself um, a little bit and, and, you know, finding ways to work with that. So I think maybe what I would say is keep an open mind. There'll be some things that you will absolutely love and really relish and have a little bit more freedom. I think there are other things that will be challenging. And I think the most important thing is to be kind to yourself in the process. It really, really is for that one to be cheesy. <laughs> it's absolutely a marathon when you're a consultant because you're there permanently if you have a substantive post so I think it's absolutely okay to take your time to just see how you feel and I would say to really take the opportunities when they come up because uh, there's lots and lots of things that you can do it and you can influence care as a consultant. Okay that's thank you that's really helpful and I've not thought about it from that perspective before that suddenly you have lots of people with you all the time and mm. you know probably like medical students as well coming and sitting yeah. in clinic yeah. or coming a ward round and things yeah. which which you do have as a registrar as well but not as much. Yeah different perspective. So, yes yeah, yeah absolutely no that's that's really interesting and what things like because while you're a registrar you kind of get given a rotor and that's mm. it and this is how much you get paid and there's no you know we never have to think about or negotiate anything. Whereas mm. once you become a consultant, you've suddenly got to negotiate a job plan. I feel like mm. that's something that nobody really talks about or teaches us about. Um, how, how did you find that experience? Gosh, that's that's a really, really good question. Um, I think, to be honest, I found it 
a little bit challenging at first because you're right I'd been a registrar for about seven and a half years in total and had kind of gone through training and everything was provided for me I had a curriculum I had targets and knew exactly what I was doing and um, now as a full disclosure I'm someone who does quite like that <laughs> I'm quite strategic I like a plan I you know I like to know where I'm going and I think you become a consultant and suddenly you aren't let loose there's there's this freedom and I think you're absolutely right job plans and job planning the process of that is really really key to your career and I think your satisfaction um, as a consultant when I started I worked full-time which was right for me at the time and then I reduced my hours so I now work four days a week so I work eight sessions and I think that maybe came about after about a year, year and a half of being here. And I think that's because I had been in the role long enough to know maybe what I wanted to develop a little bit more. And I think as well that you build up relationships within, you know, with the rest of your team, but also within your sort of wider colleagues and, and you know, your sort of business division. So I think maybe what I would say is um, if, you know, people are listening to this and they're at the stage where they're starting to think ahead about becoming a new consultant, there's some brilliant, brilliant resources around. So the BMA have really good um, information and resources on their website about job planning. And I think it's about having the confidence and knowing that it's okay when you do uh, accept your first consultant job to say, this is the job plan. Could we have a review within three to six months? And um, because it is a accepted that when you start a job you you will of course need time to get into the rhythm of it um etc mm -hmm. so i think my one kind of nugget of advice would be to people um agree a job plan but i would just have some check-in point whether that's three months or six months to just say actually i've been here for a while could we look at xyz and it may be that that's not possible to change your job plan immediately but actually i think being open and honest with your colleagues and with your line manager about where you might want to change your job plan is really important the other thing as well that you realize as a consultant is there are loads of other job opportunities that come up. So say, for example, you know, you can go off and, for example, become a college tutor or, uh, for example, you might want to take on an additional PA. So that's a uh, programmed activity, which is four hours uh, within normal working hours as a consultant. And that might be for something like, for example, you want to be the guardian of safe working for junior doctors or you want to go and be a medical examiner. And it's really, really exciting to have all of these opportunities. But again, you need to know and you need to plan and you need to be honest and upfront about how you might want to do. And, you know, I think there's often lots and lots of scope for negotiation um, within that. So just keep an open mind. Always try to stay one step ahead of where you might want to go and just be open to opportunities. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, and I guess, you know, before you get appointed as a consultant, you've got to make it through the consultant interview. Do you have any? Yes. Do you have any advice <laughs> about that? Um, yes, I think for the consultant interview, what I would say, and it's nothing profound or kind of shocking, is prepare, prepare, prepare. So when you go for your consultant interview, they're not really looking so much at your clinical capabilities and your credibility and that's obviously because if you hold a cct so a certificate of completion of training it is obviously assumed that you are clinical that you are um, safe uh, and it's appropriate for you to work at a clinical a senior autonomous um, level so what they're more looking for is what value can you as an individual offer to the organization 
So you have to be really clever and start thinking about what you as a person can bring. And that's why I think throughout your registrar training, it's really important to just reflect on what you like and what you don't like. So as I say, you know, within palliative medicine, do you like working in the community? Do you not? Do you prefer being in an inpatient unit? Would you rather be working in a cancer centre? And it's just to really start to hone where you want to go with your career. So the consultant interview, I would say preparation is absolutely key. If you're applying to a hospital trust, absolutely look at their CQC ratings. Go and just have a feel, you know, who is on the board, who's on the executive team, what is the trust strategy? And actually that's because they are making a significant investment in you as a consultant and your role at the interview is to shine and show off the unique talents and skills that you have. And again, I think in registrar training, perhaps you don't realise all the gifts and the skills that you have. So I think in summary, I'd say prepare. I would say, if you don't know the hospital, go and have a walk around, go and sit in you know, the hospital canteen, have a coffee, make sure that you meet people. So as well as meeting, you know, if it's appropriate, the medical director or somebody on the executive board or one of the consultants, make sure that you, you know, go and meet the divisional head of nursing or you meet the lead nurse for the role as well. So just think a little bit more broadly as well, because you will be looked to as a consultant for your uh, wider leadership and managerial skills by the whole team, not just the junior doctors that you work with. That's really insightful. I'd not even thought about that. Oh, it's important to go and meet the, the wider leadership team in the hospital. I think it's just because as trainees, we move around different hospitals every six months yeah. that I don't think we fully actually understand how the hospital works and how hospital yeah. management works and things. So I think... Um, yeah, maybe that's something that I need to do a future episode on so that, so that we Good idea. get an yeah, understanding that's a great one. of that. Um, Good idea. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's just that there are so many different levels and directorates and you kind of just think, I don't really know what this means. So, yes, but it's so different when you're a consultant and you are part of that one organisation. Um, Absolutely. That, that it, is, it is so different. And I guess partly what I want to do with this podcast is that we do talk about these things that are important in, you know, yeah. in our careers, but yeah. we don't really get taught how to how to go about them. No, um, and, and I think it is, it's almost that bit about the hidden curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, because to function well as a consultant, there's many different facets to what you do. So the clinical knowledge and performance is absolutely the priority. And I don't think anybody would say otherwise. But actually, you need to think about how you function both within your team, within your wider division or directorate or however it is that your hospital or your uh, unit or or your trust is structured as well. And I think as well as a consultant, you overlap with so many different other specialties as well. Again, I can only talk from my own experience, but palliative medicine, I think we work with virtually every single specialty, maybe apart from oh gosh, perhaps sports and exercise medicine, or um, that's probably the only specialty I think that um, we don't have much interaction with. Um, So I think as well, it's about realising that you are an advocate, not only for your specialty, but also for the trust itself. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, just so, so 
helpful to to get that that different perspective about it so thank you so much Charlotte I'm sure our listeners will find that really helpful you spoke in your introduction about British Sign Language and I've definitely seen you tweeting about that so I'd love to explore um, a little bit about that Um, how how did you first get into it is it something that you've been interested in for, for a long time what was it that sparked that interest So thank you for asking me. This is, uh, for me, has been an absolute evolving and growing joy. So I started learning sign language, oh gosh, five, six years ago now, back, I think when I was a registrar here actually at Guildford. Um, And to be honest with you, it came about because I wanted a little bit of a Um, a challenge so as I sort of briefly mentioned before before I came into medicine I did a degree in English literature and French which was just brilliant I absolutely loved it and I think I've always been a little bit sad that um, unfortunately I have let my French language skills sort of almost dissolve and dissipate uh, since coming into medicine and I thought I'd love to pick up a language again let's just have a think about it and actually it just came into my head thinking why don't I try something completely different rather than try a spoken language let's try sign language and um, I don't know any deaf people um, I hadn't had an encounter with a deaf patient it wasn't anything like that it was just a pure spark of curiosity and that's what I'm like I love learning I'm curious about new things I'll pretty much give most stuff a go if I think it's right to do so so I was very fortunate. I found a, a sign language school that is very close to where I live and they teach right through from level one to level six. And I thought, I'll give level Oh, one. I didn't know there were so many different levels. But yes, I know. It kind of sort of um, grows. It's really exciting. So I um, thought I'm going to give level go a uh, level one a go. If it works, great. If it doesn't, that's fine. You don't know. And I remember very, very clearly um, walking into the room and uh, nobody was speaking. It was absolute silence. And I thought, wow, this is really different. And I did my level one, loved it, went on to level two, uh, loved that as well. Um, had a break for a couple of years when I became a new consultant because we moved house, just different things changing. And then picked up level three again and I passed the exams this summer and then have just coming now towards the end of my level four for uh, the first term. For me, it's an absolute joy. I think it brings me kind of intellectual stimulation from something that medicine doesn't. I really, really like learning new skills. I'm really fortunate that I have been taught by uh, native deaf people throughout my learning. Mm -hmm. And that's been such a rich experience. It also as well has probably kind of fired a little bit of a deeper spark within me about thinking wider about healthcare inequalities. Mm And I think, you know, for example, I was involved recently in a patient information video, which is all spoken information. And when I was asked to do it, I said, I'm really happy to do it. But could you please confirm that there will be subtitles on the information video? Because that's, a, you know, a really, really important way that we make language and communication accessible. So I think it's really, really opened my eyes to that. Um, For me, it's just an absolute joy to learn and to be able to start to communicate in another language. And I think as well, I'm sure as you know, last year on Strictly Calm Dancing, Rose Eiling Ellis won. And it was just absolutely brilliant to say deaf people can absolutely achieve. We need to have equality of access to all opportunities um, as well. So for me, it's been absolutely brilliant. I would highly recommend it to anybody who wants to learn. And yeah, my Twitter uh, feed is mainly full of sign language tweets. (laughs) So yeah, for me, it's absolutely brilliant. 
And what is the best way to get started? Oh, good question. For me, as I say, I just did what most people do, just went into Google. Um, There is a formal um, awarding body. So there's two, I think, but the one that I've done all my qualifications with is called Signature. um, And they have registered accredited sites. From my perspective um, and from what I have learned from being around the deaf community, um, I think it's absolutely important that we respect that it is their language and it's their Mm -hmm. culture and they own it. And as a hearing person, um, it is a privilege to be able to learn that. So I think from that, I would say um, it's important that if you want to learn, you learn from a deaf person who uses sign language. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're so right. Like particularly at the moment, we're just seeing more and more about um, inequalities and health inequalities, that mm. it's so important that we make things that are inclusive and accessible. Absolutely. Um, and just while you were speaking, I was thinking, oh, the podcast kind of excludes everybody who is deaf mm-hmm. because there isn't a version of it that they could. So I think with the videos, we need to get them edited and get them captioned yeah. so that yeah. um, so they, could, yeah. they could watch those. Yeah, definitely. That's mm-hmm. something that I need to add to, to my list of, of things to, to do um, because because it's so, so important. Yes, right. I will be looking up sign language courses that, uh, that are near me that I can... Thank you. I didn't didn't need to give you more work to do. (laughs) Another one of my tasks. (laughs) No, but that's fine. It's a good task because we we've got the you know we've got the videos. I just haven't had time to sit and edit them. I need to find some. If there's any medical students or anybody who's listening who would like to spend some time editing videos, we've got a whole host of these podcast (laughs) videos. Love for somebody to edit them so we can put them, yes, so that we can put them on YouTube with captions and then they're more inclusive as well. Um, and just some people prefer, um, prefer videos, don't we? Oh, well, maybe we'll have to do like a webinar where you come and give people a flavor of sign language so that if they're interested, they can go and they can go and learn. Brilliant. I got so distracted thinking about um, organising these videos that I can't remember what I was going to um, ask you about next. <laughs> thinking about all these videos that I need to edit and get, <laughs> get onto YouTube. And uh, so you mentioned that you'd become a new consultant four years ago. And um, I mean, I'm losing track of what how many years of this pandemic we're saying we're in, whether it's two or three or what's going on now. But had you become a new consultant sort of a year before the pandemic and then that must have changed everything so how how was that for you so I'd been a consultant probably for just over a year before um the COVID pandemic started in it was March 2020 wasn't it a bit like you it's all the last couple of years all sort of merged into one um so yes so um I had about a year's worth of experience under my belt which was quite good I think the first year year and a half can be a little bit up and down just while you're finding your feet um and sort of learning your own style um as well and the same as absolutely um everybody obviously the the pandemic hit very very quickly and I think it really shifted the way actually that we deliver palliative care both within the acute setting but also as well from what I understand from my colleagues who work in the community I think generally within palliative care, we are relatively familiar with certain disease trajectories. So we know kind of roughly the difference between end of life care for uh, somebody who has cancer as opposed to somebody who's dying from frailty. Um, And I think the big challenge with COVID was that we didn't really know how people were going to die. We didn't understand the Mm. 
natural history. And I think as well, we didn't really know whether the drugs that we had traditionally used for people who had shortness of breath or respiratory failure, we didn't really have um, much understanding, obviously, about the right way to use those, how to titrate them, etc. But I think one of the brilliant things that came out of COVID was that everybody worked together. And I don't think this is a scenario that was unique to palliative medicine. So just as much as ICU pulled together to you know, look at the trials and the work that they had done, just as much as we look at the vaccines and how everybody pulled together to help those. There was a lot of work that went on incredibly quickly within the specialty, looking at how we best support people who were dying from uh, COVID. And I think that it was a big challenge, if I'm honest. As I said, a lot of my job is working with families uh, and patients who I've probably known for a while. Obviously, we do have people who die um, in hospital, including many people who choose to die in hospital, mm. which I see as a real privilege. Um, and so we may not have known everybody for that long, but generally we'll have had some understanding of their disease trajectory and we will know the families and the patients. And that changed overnight because we went from looking after people who were dying very, very quickly of an unknown disease. And I think it was challenging, but I think it was incredibly rewarding to be able to do that. And I think and I, I hope that it actually raised the profile of palliative medicine and how important it is to be able to offer good end of life care to people, regardless of um, what disease they may be dying from, also regardless of the setting as well. I think that we are only just starting probably to scratch the surface to see some of the um, psychological distress, some of the burnout that colleagues have experienced as a result of that. And I think within palliative medicine, we are familiar and hopefully comfortable with death and dying. And I think that, you know, I found very quickly that I went to supporting colleagues from other specialties who weren't used to seeing it, perhaps as much as I was. So I think I went from being very familiar and relatively comfortable, just starting to find my feet to being a bit of a baptism of fire and working with a new disease with different ways of working um, as well and providing it um, end of life care differently uh, as well. But I think it has, as I said, I hope it has highlighted and showcased the importance of the specialty. Um, and I think certainly as well, it for me has been really, really helpful in terms of kind of strengthening my clinical judgment and working collaboratively as well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And as you know, Charlotte, this whole uh, season, season two has been all about leadership. And just before we started recording, you were telling me that you are currently on the RCP Emerging Women Leaders Programme. Mm. Um, I might have said that title wrong again so um, please correct me if I've said it wrong but that's that's amazing that you're on that so it'll be great to hear a little bit about that program. Oh thank you Nathana. So the Royal College of Physicians Emerging Women's Leaders Programme uh, I think runs once a year and essentially it's a programme for uh, consultants or um, SAS doctors uh, who are relatively new in their career, and it's looking at developing your own skills as a leader. Um, I think it's probably important to say that it's not that uh, women are special or that women are different as leaders, but I think perhaps that there are different challenges, I think maybe, and different barriers for women. So it really aims to focus on that. And I think as well, it is important, I know this has come up before on the uh, podcast as well, about using everybody as an ally as well. So it's not just a gender specific um, thing. 
But essentially, the programme runs over a year. There are two different uh, cohorts. There's a cohort in Liverpool and a cohort in London. And there's a, um, quite a few different days. Some of them are hybrid, some of them are face-to-face. -face. And we look at various different things. So, for example, looking at your own skills and your personality profiling. So we've done the Myers-Briggs type personality profile, mm -hmm. which is uh, very interesting. Um, if you ever have a chance to do one, I would recommend that you do. Things certainly for me, it felt uh, very, very on brand and very me and certainly as well um, I'm a J so I'm a strong judger I like planning I like strategy uh, my husband is a P and is a perceiver so he's one of those people that leave it to the last minute and he pulls it off at the exact last moment so my husband and I are complete opposites on that side of the spectrum so just as a lighter hearted moment it will give you a bit of an insight maybe into yourself and your own <laughs> kind of relationships but as well, the, the programme really sort of looks as well about how, for example, we can use our skills as consultants or as SAS doctors to really hone services, to think about what you can do to improve your service as well. But also as well, thinking about things like role modelling, professional behaviours, how you model fallibility, how you cope with challenging situations with a workforce or with team dynamics as well. So I was really, really fortunate to be accepted. And um, so far, it's been an absolutely brilliant programme. And I think I would say to anybody who's listening out there, just go for it. You know, really, really, if it interests you, do it. And actually, one of our respiratory consultants who works here, who's a colleague, I noticed that she had done it. I sent her some messages. We got in touch and she said exactly the same to me. She said, Charlotte, do it. And it was the best piece of advice that she gave me. So I'm really just passing on someone else's wisdom. So, yeah, it's brilliant. Great, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And is it only open to um, consultant physicians? Do you have to be like a member of? I the think it is. Yes, yeah, so it's just okay. within the, the Royal College of Physicians. So yeah, um, consultants or as I say, um, SA, uh, or SAS doctors. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose my sort of my reasoning behind that was like, do you have to be adult medics? Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, okay. I think so, yes. But, you know, I'm sure there are lots of other opportunities. I've seen, again, from Twitter, good old Twitter, that there are, you know, programmes within different specialties, um, you know, particularly looking at, for example, women in surgery. So, yeah, I would say just keep keep your eye out as you start to become a registrar and you start to kind of see that there are different opportunities. I first realised this programme probably a couple of years ago when I was a brand new consultant and I said, this isn't for me yet. It's not the right time, but I kind of knew that it was there in the background. And that really links to back to what I was saying earlier on about um, you're in it for the long run as a consultant. Mm -hmm. So yeah. just stay one step ahead of opportunities that might come up. Yeah. And I guess your job, you know, it, we're going to be consultants or SAS doctors for quite a long time. So the job right at the beginning isn't exactly how it's going to be later on. It will change. And I think we sometimes forget that when we're, when we're in training, people sort of yeah. say, you know, there's no rush to get to the end. You can take your time because once you become a consultant, that's it sort of thing. But actually, it's not really it because it's still going to be changing. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. So we'll go on to the quick fire questions, oh. which um, as a regular loyal listener, you already know the answer. <laughs> well, you already know the questions, so you might already have your answers to them. Oh. <laughs> um, so I do keep thinking that I need to change these questions. So maybe for, for the next season, I might change some of the questions. Um, I won't change them right now, though. Um, so my first question is, do you have a book or several books that you would recommend for our listeners to read? Uh, yes. So. 
I, as I've said before, and same as you, I'm a real bookworm and I love reading. I do have to say as well that I have read a few of the recommendations that people have given Mm -hmm. in the podcast, which has been brilliant. I, in particular, really like reading biographies and autobiographies. And that's because I'm quite curious, quite like learning about people's lives. And I think the two that I would recommend, the first one is called Dreams from My Mother, which you may have heard of, which is written by Dame Elizabeth Anionwu. I'm sure many listeners will have heard of Dame Elizabeth Anionwu. She is a nurse and a health visitor uh, who has just had the most amazing career so in particular she's known for her work in developing uh, sickle cell uh, services for children Mm -hmm. and her memoir talks about her childhood and talks about some of her kind of family issues and her training as well I think what really really struck me was her resilience her humor and she talks very openly and very honestly I thought she was an absolute inspiration so I would say to anybody that's a brilliant one to read and the second one uh, autobiography is possibly a little bit more off-piste this is a book that I first read when I was oh gosh I don't know many years ago as a teenager and it's called Body and Soul and it's Dame Anita Roddick's autobiography so I'm sure as everybody knows Dame Anita Roddick was the founder of The Body Shop and when I was a teenager this just absolutely uh, just there was something about it that really really resonated with me it's really good as well from a kind of female point of view about learning that actually we have skills and talents uh, as females within the workplace and how to use those as well but also as well for me Anita Roddick was somebody who was uh, I think it's probably reasonable to say she was a bit maverick but my goodness did she make a difference you know her ethical and her social justice um, you know beliefs were amazing and there's also some really really humorous stories in there about how she set up the body shop including a very very cute little story about how they had to change some of their products because uh, the bees came into the hive with dirty feet so uh, that they kind of you know filtrated through to some of their shampoos so what I would say is it's absolutely brilliant so those are my two I have to ask Nithana if I may can I ask you for a book recommendation oh you can um I'm the sort of person that has about 10 books on the go. Are um, you? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I f- flick through various different books. I do, I do eventually get through the whole book. Okay. Uh, what would my book recommendation be? I mean, my favorite ever book is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so many different life lessons in that that I find really helpful. So that would be one of my recommendations. And then I think. 4,000 Weeks is a book that I read after several of our um, guests recommended it. Um, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Yes, I've heard um, Yes, several people recommended that. That completely changed the way that I thought about yeah. time. Wow. So I'd recommend that one as well. Um, Thanks, I'm going to put that on my Christmas wish list. Yes, put that on Thank your Christmas you. wish list. I'm trying to think what, uh, what are the other books... I like every single book that I've read, so you kind of want to recommend them all. <laughs> oh, another one that I really, really like is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. That's uh, yeah. that, that book I found really, really helpful. Um, so I would say those are my top three recommendations. Lovely. Thank you very much. A few to add to my Christmas wish list. Yes, yes, absolutely. And can I just say for listeners as well, of course, buy books from wherever you want to get them from. But if you do choose to buy books via Amazon, there's a thing called Amazon Smile where you can choose a charity and we've put the Medical Women's Federation on there. So if anybody is buying any Christmas presents and wants to use that, it'll mean that no extra cost to them. You just buy as normal. 
but Amazon then donates a proportion of, of the money that we spend and sends it to charities. And there are loads of charities on there, but it's just, we're, we're trying to raise funds for MWF. So if you would like to choose us as that, that would be really helpful. My next quickfire question is, is there anything you know now that you wish you had known earlier on in your career? I think the thing that comes to mind first of all, um, so most of all, is not to sweat the small stuff too much. I think that medics often want to do everything as perfectly and beautifully as they can do. And that's actually very good. And I think it's important that we do strive to do the best that we can. But none of us are perfect at all. And I think sometimes maybe when I was a bit more junior, perhaps I worried or got a little bit too bogged down in some of the smaller stuff. It's very easy to say that now. But I think I would say don't sweat too much over the small stuff. Try to maybe just be a little bit more zen about some stuff. Some stuff will just work its way out in time. Um, and I think that's probably what I would have maybe wished I'd known maybe 10, 15 years ago. Thank you. I think that's something that as I kind of get further on in my career that I'm starting to realise. I think as a medical student and like as a really junior doctor, you can really worry if you make a mistake yeah. or do something not completely perfectly. Um and I think sort of the whole process of getting into medical school and getting through medical school, it really heightens all of our perfectionism. Yeah. And then I see quite a lot of doctors struggling with this. So actually another book recommendation is oh, the, yeah. gifts of, the Gifts of Imperfection by Brené Brown, um, okay. which uh, Professor Chloe Orkin, our president, actually gifted to me a little while ago and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, yeah. So it's all about you know embracing the fact that we're imperfect. I did contact Brené Brown and see if she'd come on the podcast, but I got a very polite, um, sorry, she's too busy, but thank you for asking. Oh, um, gosh. Her books, are, her books are wonderful. Um, but that would be, that's another good book about, um, oh, thanks about for embracing that. our imperfection. Um, so thank thank you for, for that advice. That's, that's really helpful. I think that, yeah, that we will embrace being imperfect and don't sweat the small stuff. Is there any advice that you've ever been given that's been really helpful that you would wish on, wish to pass on to others? So there's loads and loads of advice that I've been given that has been really helpful. The bit that stands out most for me is when I was uh, a junior doctor and I was struggling to pass part one MRCP and finding things really, really difficult. I felt that I was working really hard and I wasn't getting anywhere. And my very, very wise college tutor, uh, who was just absolutely lovely, lovely, said to me, Charlotte, hard work is never wasted. And I didn't really understood what he meant at the time. Mm. And I think now I absolutely realise. I think often you may not get the result that you want at the time, but actually that knowledge, that skill, that experience, that time that you put in at some point will absolutely pay off somewhere down the line. So I think it would kind of almost be saying, yeah, that hard work is never wasted. And I hope that maybe even if that's just helpful for one person who's struggling with exams, feel that they're working really, really hard and not getting anywhere. That for me really, really helped me through when I was struggling with my own exams. So keep at it. It will pay off somewhere down the line. Thank you. That's that's really helpful advice. Um, and I think you're so right. Like knowledge and hard work are just are never wasted. And um if it is that you know if we revise for an exam and we don't get through it that knowledge is 
is is never going to going to go to waste. So I think that's really helpful to hear. Final and favorite question, which I know you already know, but we might have some new listeners who uh, who don't know this question. I've been waiting for this, Nana. <laughs> no, Charlotte sent me a message saying I might have changed my answer to the biscuit I question because um, you. <laughs> Uh, message me a while about ago. this for yes. weeks <laughs> for weeks <laughs> <laughs> months ago Charlotte sent me um, a message on Twitter saying um I think it'd be this biscuit could you tell us what your biscuit you would be on one of the episodes <laughs> so if you're a new listener and you're thinking what on earth are they talking about um at the end of every episode I ask our guest a question which I have borrowed from a group of children and young people who work with the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health they asked this question when they were interviewing people for the role of president of the RCPCH. And I just thought it's the best question ever. Um, so I asked them if I could borrow and they very kindly said yes. So the question is, if you were a type of biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be and why? And I think I've changed my answer to this question too. So you can tell tell us your answer and then I'll, I'll, I'll give them mine. Okay. So I think that I would be a Lotus Biscoff biscuit. Oh, those are delicious. They are. And I've been thinking extensively about this. I did say I was a planner and I like to kind of have everything in my head. So I think the reason why is because Lotus Biscoff biscuits are quite neat biscuits. They don't leave a mess. They don't sort of crumble easily. They're not a messy biscuit to eat. I'm quite a neat, efficient, organised person. I think secondly as well, they have a sweet flavour, but they've got a bit of punch and they've got a bit of spice in them. And I think uh, that's how I would like to be seen, someone who's approachable and warm, but I can, you know, be a bit sassy when I need to and have a bit of spice, which is a good thing. I think thirdly as well, that a Lotus uh, Biscoff biscuit comes in lots of different forms now, doesn't it? So I don't know whether you've seen, you can get ice cream um, uh, Biscoff biscuits, um, which are amazing, by the way. Oh, very dangerous. Oh, gosh, amazing. So is it ice cream? What, it's a biscuit and ice cream? Yeah, well, so it's the flavouring of Biscoff biscuits. Right, but as an ice cream. Oh, my gosh. I discovered them over the summer in the heat wave. are lovely. But they also come as well as a spread, don't they? And they come as um, you can either have them on their own or you you can have a packet of kind of two or three um, Lotus Biscoff biscuits. I think that probably goes to show the fact that, as I said right back at the very beginning, I've got lots of different hats. I'd like to think that I'm versatile. So whilst being a doctor and being a physician is really, really important to me, my home life's really important to me, my husband, my family, my friends, sign language is important to me as well. Um, so I think that's what I would be. And that's probably a, a, a very stark contrast to my husband, who would definitely be a jammy dodger, because he's very jammy. And as I said, sort of pulls everything off at the last minute, but everybody loves him and he can get away with it um so as you can tell I I ask people a lot about what biscuit they would be so um well done to the children who came up with this brilliant question and it's a great icebreaker it is it is a great icebreaker I think at the next MWF conference we'll just have to all go around doing an icebreaking of what biscuit would you be and then we'll just have loads of different biscuits and like planning the conference all around this biscuit oh, I love question and um, all, all around the biscuits I'll just turn up with all these different biscuits and people can choose what biscuit can I just ask quickly as well Nathana you said that you think you've changed your answer mm-hmm. mm. I think so and I have to say, both yours and your husband's biscuits are both very nice biscuits. Um, I do Thank like you. Biscoff biscuits and Jummy Dodgers, so yeah. good choices. 
Thank so you. I've previously said that I think that I would be shortbread. Okay. Um, because it's got quite a lot of layers. It's a bit of a rarer biscuit, but I've changed my mind. I actually think I'd be a party ring biscuit. Ooh, um, yeah, because they're just, they're really fun. They bring a smile to everyone's face. Yes, everyone, ring. everyone loves a, everyone loves a party ring. And I've realized that I kind of lead with fun and that's, Lovely. that's, yeah. So, so I kind of feel like actually, I don't think I am a shortbread. I think, I think I'm a party ring. Good for you. Love it. Lovely way to end. Well, Charlotte, thank you. Yeah, party ring and biscoff biscuits. Exactly. Well, it's the run up to Christmas, so um, so you know, whilst <laughs> um, I feel like as as this is a medical podcast, we should say everything in moderation. But, um, but yeah. enjoy eating some biscuits. Absolutely. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to actually get to speak to you. As I've said, it's um, you know, since the podcast began, I've had such lovely messages from Charlotte about how she's finding the podcast. And I keep saying on the podcast, you know, thank you for everybody's messages. I do read all of them and they mean a lot because we make a podcast and we put it out there and we've got absolutely no idea who's listening, what they're doing, whether they actually find any of my rambling at all helpful. So it is really lovely to hear. So it's been really, really nice to have you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both for the invitation and, and for the time. And, and also just as well, thank you for doing the podcast. As I say, I've learned so much from them, shared them with other people, and they've been an absolute source of joy. So well done, you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Medical Women podcast. Make sure to subscribe for free on whichever podcast platform you listen on so that you automatically get our episodes. The aim of this podcast is to support and empower as many medical women in their careers as we possibly can. So please share this episode with at least one other medical woman. If you're interested in joining the Medical Women's Federation, we would love to have you. And all links to our website and social media are in the show notes. This podcast has been produced on behalf of the Medical Women's Federation by Dr. Nathana Bayankaram and Ms. Jenna McKenzie. Our music was composed and played by Dr. Keith Bayankaram. Thank you so much for listening.